0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Joshua and I'll be your host today. Today we'll be talking to John Barton about his book, A History of the Bible, The Book and Its Faith. John is a senior research fellow and emeritus professor of the interpretation of Holy Scripture at the University of Oxford. He is also an ordained Anglican priest who has served as a chaplain to St. Cross College, Oxford. His book, A History of the Bible, traces the story of this monumental book and cultural icon from its beginnings in folklore and myth to its reception and interpretation in the present day. A History of the Bible was the winner of the 2019 Duff Cooper Prize and was shortlisted for the 2020 Wolfson History Prize. We've got an hour or so to get through, I think, 700 pages and surely many years worth of research, so we really ought to get started. John, a very warm welcome to New Books in History.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Um, perhaps we could start by talking a little about yourself and your journey as both an academic and a clergyman. Was this a career you've always seen yourself pursuing?
2: Yes, I think I initially thought of myself as a clergyman. In other words, I, I studied theology at university because I wanted to be ordained in the Church of England. And I saw myself as having a par- being a parish minister. But um, I got diverted when I started studying theology at university into an academic path, which I've pursued ever since. I did have a go on to be ordained as well. And as you said, I was chaplain for a while of um, St. Cross College, which is a place in Oxford I was associated with for some 17 years. And I am active in the parish where I live, about seven miles south of Oxford. Um, so I've managed, in a sense, to combine both. But as far as career goes, I've never been actually in the employment of the church. I've always been a university lecturer and then professor. Uh, and um, that's occupied me all my my whole career long. Um, I studied theology at Oxford, and I stayed at Oxford as a lecturer and then professor, so I've never been anywhere else. Uh, at least, I've been to other places, but I've never been anywhere else in employment. Um, and so my, my career is, in, in that sense, a very simple one. It's entirely centered on Oxford.
1: I see. And you... You're right, it's a simple one, but it's also, I think we can say with your absolute confidence, a very illustrious career in the field of religious study and theology. Um, in this book, you've chosen to write about a subject that is central not only, not only to your faith and mine, but to that of many others. I think it's Colin Burrow from The Guardian who's likened this attempt at chronicling the origins and evolution of the Bible to tiptoeing through a minefield. Um, how have yes. you and how have you, throughout your career, navigated religion as an object of academic study?
2: Well, it's yes, it's very interesting. Um, I mean, I've I've never felt a great conflict between um, my religious beliefs and my academic study of the Bible, partly because I think I'm within the Anglican uh, Christian family, as it were. And uh, although we take the Bible extremely seriously, we don't put all our eggs in the basket of the Bible in the way that some Protestant denominations do. So that to learn that there are things in the Bible that are not necessarily strictly true or there are inconsistencies hasn't worried me in the way it worries some other Protestant theologians. Um, And I seem to have faced the challenge of that with reasonable equanimity. Um, I've of course been aware that many of the students I've taught have come from much more conservative theological backgrounds than my own. And um, there I have had to try to get them to embrace a critical attitude to Scripture without that undermining their religious faith, which is not always an easy task. But I have always tried to do that. I'm not in the business of trying to unsettle people's faith. I but see. at the same time, I that they should study the Bible in a critical spirit.
1: Definitely. Um, before we delve into the final details of this incredible book, I wonder if you could sketch for us the broader contours of what you've attempted to cover in your book, its scope and its themes?
2: Yes, um, I start with uh, an attempt to show how the Bible got written, how the individual books came into being. And that means the, the major types of literature in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. Then I go on to look at how the, these books were collected and formed a canon of scripture, both in Judaism and in Christianity. Then I've tried to trace how the books have been interpreted down the ages, again in both Judaism and Christianity. And then finally, I have a chapter on the translation of the Bible and how people have tried to make it uh, relevant and new for every fresh generation. Um, Obviously, even though the book is very long, it's, as you say about 700 pages. Nevertheless, it's too short to cover the whole of that. which would take many volumes. So in that sense, it's a sort of compressed version of a complete history of the Bible. But I thought it was worth, I mean, Penguin proposed the title to me, actually, as a something they would like to, uh, to have. And when I stopped to think about it, I saw that in a certain sense, I could compress everything I've ever known about the Bible into this one volume. So it's a kind of compendium of what I know and think I know about the Bible's history and development and interpretation down the ages.
1: I see. And you're right, it's, it's such an enormous task writing about a book as influential and significant as the Bible. What kinds of challenges did you encounter in this writing process?
2: Well, I think it was the sheer scope and uh, range of the subject. Um, of course, from outside, side, I might think biblical studies is a small field But uh, when you're inside it, you encounter local specialisms, and my specialism is Old Testament, Hebrew Bible. So to write even about the New Testament, as I had to do, I had to do a great deal of reading. And then I got on to the history of interpretation and had to read myself into Jewish rabbinic interpretations and Christian patristic interpretations. That's to say the interpretations of the Bible in the first few centuries of the Christian era. And then I had to get on to medieval and reformation and enlightenment interpretations too. So the challenge was to try and cover this enormous field um, as as a solo researcher. Um, Because one might think a book like this really needs to be written by a committee. But I wanted to give my own take on the whole thing. And I was very much encouraged by Penguin, who initially invited me to write this book on this subject. And I was initially dubious whether I could cover the whole field. But I think um, the price is that you might make mistakes and that some of it might be rather thin. But the gain is that you get one person's take on the whole area uh, rather than a series of fragmented takes by different people.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And you talk about your take, your specific take on, on the history of the Bible. How does all of this contribute to the existing scholarship available in the history of the Bible?
2: Well, I don't think there's very much in the book which is uh, new research in the sense that um, the facts I refer to throughout are all facts that are known by people in general in the field. So it's not, in that sense, a research project in the sense that a technical paper might be a research project. Um, But I hope it contributes by trying to pull the whole field together and um, to show as I try to do in the introduction and conclusion, the way the Bible relates to faith, both Christian and Jewish. The subtitle is The Book and Its Faiths. Mm. And uh, I try to show that though the Bible and Christian and Jewish beliefs overlap, they're not actually coterminous. I have an image of a kind of Venn diagram of interlocking circles, where one circle is the contents of the Bible, and the other is the contents of the Christian or Jewish faith, and those are considerable area of overlap. But there are things in the Bible that don't get paid much attention to in Christianity, and there are things in Christianity that don't get much attention in the Bible. So that the uh, argument of the book, if you like, is that that there's actually a, a certain distance between the Bible and the faith that draws upon it.
1: I see. Um, and you talk about the scope being particularly broad. Did you have a specific audience in mind when you're writing this book, or was it more general reading?
2: Well, it was for the general reader, but I, I was, I mean, obviously, a general reader who's prepared to read 700 work, pages <laughs> is already a rather specialized kind of general reader. Um, it was intended, I think, above all, for people who don't necessarily have a religious commitment. In other words, it's not a religious book in the sense that. It's trying to strengthen people's faith or provide them with devotional material. It's a book for the person who finds the Bible interesting and who perhaps often thought, I wish I knew a bit more about this book, which is so mysterious, uh, rather than necessarily for the insider, the sort of committed Christian or um, observant Jew. Um, It's meant for people, therefore, of any faith or none, as they say, who uh, is interested in the Bible uh, and uh, feels they don't know enough about it. So that's the that's the audience I had in mind. Obviously, I had in mind a generally educated audience in that, again, many people don't read 700-page books at all. Mm-hmm. But um, the uptake suggests that there is an audience out there that is interested in uh, learning more about the Bible from this, uh, perhaps in a way, rather non-committal point of view.
1: Mm-hmm. That's wonderful to hear. And if we could talk briefly about the current state of biblical scholarship, what are some features or debates that you feel are not given due mention in the academic literature concerning the Bible today?
2: Well, one of the features of the biblical studies scene at the moment is how fragmented it is. But there isn't a kind of um, agreement. The, 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 after the Second World War, there was a a wide consensus in both Old and New Testament studies on a number of features of the of the landscape, as it were. And now there's a certain sense that anything goes. This is partly because of the influence of postmodernism on biblical studies, where there's been a, a sense that you can read the Bible from any perspective you like. And that's produced a certain uh, fragmented character to the, to the field. Um, nevertheless, there are quite a lot of positions on which there's general agreement. If you take my New Testament section, uh, agreement that Paul's letters are the earliest books in the New Testament, that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels, that John is the last of the Gospels to be written. Those are matters on which there is broad general agreement among more or less all biblical scholars, and there are similar things in the Old Testament where there are general agreements on a number of well-established positions about the date and origin of different books, so despite the fact that it is fragmented, there are areas of widespread and general agreement as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think we've spent quite enough time grilling you on the writing process and you know the current state of biblical scholarship, so we'd better get started on the content of your book. The first part of your book, as you acknowledged earlier, concerns the history of the Old Testament. So let's begin with a very simple question concerning terminology. Old Testament Hebrew Bible, which is it? Which do you prefer?
2: That's a, a more complicated question than it sounds. Um, the Hebrew Bible has come on board in the last uh, few decades um, out of a feeling that to call these books the Old Testament, as Christians traditionally have done, might be to suggest that they're superannuated, they're the Old Testament, and what really matters is the new one. And because of that feeling, some Jews and some Christians as well, and some non-committed people, Have felt that we ought to have a more neutral term for these books and have preferred Hebrew Bible. Now, I rather freely use both because Old Testament is the term that the average person in the street recognizes as part of the Bible, whereas Hebrew Bible doesn't convey much, at least in Britain, to anybody outside the world of theological and biblical studies, though increasingly it is beginning to. One of the problems with Hebrew Bible is that some of the Hebrew Bible is actually in Aramaic, not in Hebrew at all. Um, And uh, of course, from a Christian perspective, it seems to imply this is the whole Bible, when in fact Christians recognise the New Testament also. And also, of course, to call it Hebrew Bible then rather leaves the term New Testament, be calmed, because why is it called new if there isn't an Old Testament? So there are Mm -hmm. arguments on both sides. But the general consensus, especially in the United States, and to an increasing extent also in Britain, is to use the term Hebrew Bible, and even the German academic establishment in biblical studies is starting to use Hebrew Bible as well. They've held out for Old Testament rather longer. Um, And I think it does make the point that we're not talking about a body of literature which has been surpassed by the New Testament, we're talking about a body of literature which has its own integrity and its own rights. So I'm increasingly preferring to use Hebrew Bible unless I'm talking in an avowedly Christian context in which we've got the two parts of the Bible known as Old and New Testaments. But I'm not doctrinaire about it because I think, as I said, that the person in the street recognises Old Testament and doesn't yet recognise Hebrew Bible.
1: I see. My next question is going to be a lot broader, so feel free to interpret it in any way you wish. Now, when and where was the Hebrew Bible written? (laughs)
2: Yes, that is very broad. Um, Well, my argument in the book, and this based on a fairly widespread consensus, is that the earliest books of the Hebrew Bible were probably written about the 8th century BC. So roughly contemporary with when we think Homer was written. And the last, which is the book of Daniel, was written in the 2nd century BC. So... um, over a period of six or so centuries. Now, there are texts in the Hebrew Bible which are probably older than any of that. There are certain poems, like the Song of Deborah in Judges 5, or the Song of Moses in Exodus 21, Exodus 15, I mean, um, which uh, seem archaic in the Hebrew and may well go back into the 9th or 10th centuries BCE. But the broad... Majority of the Hebrew Bible uh, comes from between the eighth and the second centuries, probably. As to place of writing, the likelihood is that much of it was written in Jerusalem, which had um, the right kind of scribal schools and institutions to produce literature of this kind. But some of, it, some of it could have come from the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the area centred on Samaria. Um, But in general, Jerusalem is the likeliest place. It's very unlikely that any of the texts we've now got goes back, for example, to a desert period. You know, the stories of the Israelites wandering in the desert um, in uh, the books of Exodus to to Deuteronomy. Um, But it's not likely that any written texts go back as far as that. So I think the 8th to the 2nd centuries is the answer to date, and Jerusalem is probably the place.
1: And in your book, you emphasize the importance of appreciating the relationship between the Old Testament and its ancient origins in the Near East, which, you, which you've alluded to. How can our understanding of the history of the region illuminate our understanding of the Bible and our reading of the Bible?
2: Well, I think in two ways. Um, one is that some of the characters mentioned in the Hebrew Bible are actually mentioned in texts from the rest of the ancient Near East. So, for example, the prophet Balaam, who's recorded in Numbers 20 um, as a non-Israelite prophet who was involved in the early doings of the people of Israel, um, has turned up in a wall inscription in Transjordan, in, in what's now the Kingdom of Jordan, um, as a local prophet. Uh, Now, it's not to say that it proves that the stories in the Hebrew Bible about him are true necessarily, they may be legends, but he is a figure known from that kind of area. And when we get down to the time of the Hebrew kings, we get, um, for example, King Jehu of Israel portrayed on a monument of one of the Assyrian kings doing homage to the king who has just conquered him. And the name is clearly there, Jehu, so we know know it's him. Um, The other way in which the ancient Near Eastern background is important is in all the myths and legends in Genesis, where we have a story of the Great Flood and we have creation stories, which in various ways are quite parallel to the stories about Noah and the story about creation in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. So in all sorts of ways, the ancient Near Eastern background has been illuminating for um, the understanding of Old Testament Hebrew Bible texts.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Mm-hmm. And given how long ago these texts of the Bible were written, how do we know with certainty who wrote each book, not just in the New Old Testament, but in the new one as well?
2: Well, the answer is that we don't know anything with certainty at all. It's all hypothesis. Um, most of the books of the uh, New Testament are... Uh, or many of the books in the New Testament are anonymous, um, we have the letters of Paul, one or two of which um, people think were probably not originally written by Paul himself, but there's a whole core of them, Romans, 1st first, first and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, the Thessalonian letters, which pretty definitely do go back to Paul the Apostle. So there we're on reasonably firm ground. Where the Gospels are concerned, they appear in our Bibles as the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But those titles are later than the text of the Gospels themselves. And so all four Gospels are in origin anonymous. Um, and they are the weaving together of traditions about Jesus, probably handed down orally, uh, and then put together by the Evangelists. But we don't know who the Evangelists were. We can have a guess that they wrote... Mark wrote somewhere around 70 BC, around 70 CE, the years when the Romans stormed Jerusalem, and that the other Gospels are a bit later than that. And we're pretty sure that the letters of Paul go back to the 50s, so only just a couple of decades after Jesus' crucifixion. But um, so far as the books of the Hebrew Bible go, We don't have any clear knowledge of who wrote them at all in the sense of any named individuals. Um, They are often attributed again to particular people, Psalms to David, Proverbs to Solomon, Isaiah to the prophet Isaiah. But they're all clearly anthologies um, put together with that name as a kind of um, figurehead to whom they're all attributed rather than genuinely being the work of David or Solomon or Isaiah. So in the case of the Old Testament, we know very little about who the original authors were. And as to knowing anything with certainty, that's definitely off the map.
1: (laughs) All right. And we like to think of the Bible, especially so for the Old Testament, as a collection of stories that together form a somewhat coherent narrative. But that perhaps belies the sheer diversity of genres in the Bible, doesn't it?
2: Well, it does rather. Um, I mean, again, in, in two ways. First of all, that there's a great deal in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament that, that isn't narrative at all. There's um, the poetic books like Job and Psalms and Proverbs, uh, and they're all the prophetic books, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and so on, um, which don't or contain very little in the way of narrative at all, but are mostly um, collections of either prophetic oracles or Sacred poems. Nevertheless, about half the Hebrew Bible is in prose and is narrative, and it does tell a continuous story all the way from the creation of the world through to the uh, exile to Babylon in the sixth century BCE, um, and then in Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, it carries the story on a little bit into the age when Persia was in charge in the ancient world. Um, But the story, though, it is continuous, is not totally coherent, and it consists of a number of different books which probably had different origins, so that there's no single timeline on which it's all set out that one can trace. Mm -hmm.
1: And turning now to the New Testament, could you perhaps walk us through the historical backdrop against which the texts of the New Testament were authored?
2: Well, they come from a time when um, Christianity is beginning to establish itself as an independent religion from Judaism. I mean, the first Christians were, of course, Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew, and so were all the apostles. And Paul, the first Christian writer, was also a Jew, but one who became convinced that Christ was his Lord and that um, Jesus was determinative in some way for human history. Um, Now, Paul wrote to churches, most of which were churches he had founded himself, the big exception being the church in Rome, which he hadn't founded, but he did write a very long letter to. And his job is to try and navigate and negotiate the founding of these Christian groups uh, in contradistinction from surrounding Judaism, because the members of most of them by now were Gentiles, non-Jews the Christian movement spread very early on, out from Judaism into the Gentile world. And Paul is the great agent of that, proclaiming the gospel to non-Jews, wherever he goes. Um, so the background is that movement out into the Gentile world. But one has to recognise that it's against a backdrop of a Judaism which itself was very varied, There was no single Orthodox Judaism in Paul's day or in Jesus' day. There were a lot of Jewish groups and sects, among which, for example, was the sect that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which was quite distinctive from other kinds of Judaism. There was also the, the religious style of the Pharisees, which Jesus has much in common with, and the Sadducees, who were largely the priestly party in Judaism, and various other groupings, so one talks of Judaism's in the first century rather than of Judaism as a single monolithic whole. And it's against that backdrop that the early Christian community demarcated itself and gradually turned from being just another Jewish sect into being a religion for Gentiles and one which, of course, a few centuries later would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. But to start with, in, in the background of the New Testament... It is this small group moving out into the Gentile world.
1: I see. And you've talked quite a fair bit about Paul and the epistles. The epistles were, of course, a very important feature of the New Testament. What was the significance of these letters in the time of St. Paul? How did their original recipients perceive and understand them?
2: Well, I think they will have perceived them first and foremost as dealing with problems they were encountering. I mean, a lot of Paul's writing is uh, polemical and he's actually uh, engaging with positions that his churches are adopting that he doesn't agree with. You get that very strongly in Galatians, where he's faced with groups who think that you must become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And he opposes this very strongly and says no Gentiles can become Christians straight away, as it were, without going through becoming Jews first. Um, And in general, his letters are the answer to crises or problems that have arisen in the church. The same is true in 1 Corinthians, a little later, when he is um, confronted with a church which is dividing already into factions. It reminds us that uh, there, there never was a time when the Christian church was united. It, it's always had a tendency to split. And 1 Corinthians, Corinthians faces a church which is dividing into a group some of them following, claiming to follow Paul, some of them claiming to follow Apollos, who was another apostle. Um, and Paul's job is to bang their heads together and get them to agree and live at peace with each other. So the epistles are written in that way, uh, in the context of sharp controversies in the church. And Paul um, is, in that sense, simply sending letters, as any modern Christian leader might do, to a church that's having difficulties and trying to get it to see sense. At the same time, a letter in the ancient world, of course, was not as occasional as a letter is very often in the modern world. Um, it wasn't as though Paul was dashing off a few hasty emails to the Corinthian church. Um, they are all—they um, all have a certain weight and ponderousness about them, and he clearly intended them to be read and reread and kept and possibly to be read in other Christian congregations also, as they have been ever since. And people say sometimes Paul wasn't writing scripture, he was writing letters, and that's true. But nevertheless, he was writing letters which fairly naturally turned into a kind of scripture in the subsequent generations.
1: Mm -hmm. And another important collection of texts central to any reading of the New Testament would be the Gospels. How did these books come to be written?
2: Well, they are quite mysterious in a way, because the the first is generally agreed by biblical scholars to be the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest of the Gospels. Um, And it seems to be the weaving together of traditions about Jesus that perhaps had been remembered orally up to this point. I mean, the general theory is that uh, early Christians had used oral memories of Jesus and had told and retold the stories about him In their worship the churches that paul sends his letters to don't possess gospels he never says look this up in the gospel there wasn't one to look it up in Um, and uh, they would have relied on oral memory but by the time we get to the 30 40 years after the crucifixion of jesus people are starting to think they ought to have a written record of the sayings and doings of jesus And so the first person to produce one appears to have been Mark, although we don't know that he was called that. And that's a convention, that it's the Gospel of Mark. But someone had the idea of compiling Jesus' sayings and actions into a kind of biography, rather like the biographies of Greek, famous people and heroes that were circulating at the time, by weaving together various oral memories to create a book What then happens is that in the next uh, years, at least two people came along who thought they could improve on Mark, namely Matthew and Luke, whose Gospels are lengthy rewrites and improvements, in their mind anyway, on the Gospel of Mark. And then later, towards the end of the first century, we get the Gospel of John, which is fascinating and extraordinary because it clearly is telling the story of Jesus but the Jesus who appears in it is a very different, more mystical kind of figure than the one in the Gospel than the other Gospels, and uh, who talks much more about himself and his status in relation to God than he talks about the sort of social commitments and obligations that the Jesus of the other Gospels is so concerned with. So the Gospels fall into two groups, the so-called synoptic Gospels, the Gospels that look from one point of view, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and then the Gospel of John, which is in a rather different category. No one knows where these Gospels are compiled. The best bet for Mark is nowadays is probably somewhere in Syria, though it used to be thought that it was written in Rome, but the majority of scholars now seem to be moving to Syria, which may also be the place of origin of Matthew and Luke, actually. John generally thought to come from Ephesus, in what's now Turkey. But the Syrian-Turkish area is the area in which most early Christian traditions were formed and formulated. So that's probably the area where all this happened. Mm
1: -hmm. And you talk about the Gospels of Luke and Matthew being, in some ways, attempts to improve on the work of um, the Gospel of Mark. Would you say, would it be more appropriate then to view the books of the Bible, in some ways, as a dialogue between its various authors throughout the ages?
2: I think that's quite a good way of looking at it. Um, I mean, with the Gospels, um, certainly the implication in Luke at the beginning, he has a prologue which says, uh, I've looked at various versions of the story of Jesus and this is my improved version, which gets it right. Um, So that he does seem to have a, a definite intention of improving. Matthew's Gospel doesn't make that claim, but insofar as it's an extended version of Mark. It must logically imply that kind of thing. And yet the Church didn't end up, therefore, suppressing the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it used all, all the Gospels um, and retained, for the most part, a four-Gospel canon, which is quite complicated because you have certain inconsistencies between the Gospels, and they certainly don't tell exactly the same story, and yet the Church has lived quite happily with all four of them down the ages. Um, and they do form a kind of dialogue. And some people have even argued it's an advantage that we have four gospels that don't tell exactly the same story, because it means we can't get totally fixated on one version of the story of Jesus, but have to recognize that he can be seen in different perspectives by different people. And I think there is something in that. But dialogue is a good idea for interpreting the whole Bible, the Old Testament books similarly don't all say the same things about God and about God's relation to Israel and to the world. And there is a kind of running dialogue. Judaism has been rather better than Christianity at picking up different voices in the Bible and not trying to reconcile them all into a single coherent picture. Christians Mm -hmm. have been rather fixated on getting the Bible to deliver a unified message. Judaism is a bit more sensitive to differences of opinion, and willing to let them stand and not feel it has to reconcile them.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say this comes down to the importance of narrative consistency as a central feature of religions? Would you say Christians care more about having this narrative consistency than Judaism?
2: Well, I think that's probably true. Um, I mean, Jewish readers are not going to be happy if they think the Bible tells lots of totally inconsistent stories, but the the idea that every detail must somehow be compatible with every other detail has been very much a Christian preoccupation. And Jewish interpretation of scripture often works with a principle which is known as Devar another opinion, where you say this passage means so-and-so, or there again it might mean this, or perhaps it might mean this. Uh, And the interest lies in the dialogue between the various possible meanings, rather than in trying to fix on one and saying that's definitive and from now on everyone must believe it. And I think Christians have been, especially in modern times, a bit more concerned with our complete consistency. In ancient times, discrepancies, for example, between the Gospels were noted and August and Augustine in the 4th century, 5th century wrote a Book on the consensus of the evangelists arguing that there are discrepancies among the Gospels but they don't matter too much because we get a consistent picture of who Jesus is by reading the Gospels which is not called into question by detailed discrepancies between them. But I think that is in general a fair point.
1: Mm-hmm. And talking about these apparent co- inconsistencies and contradictions I think it really shows that although the Bible is often taken to be you know, the Word of God, especially so by fundamentalists, it was still written by authors who were very much human. Do we see this fact um, reflected elsewhere in the text of the Bible? Did they perhaps project their own priorities and intentions onto the text they authored?
2: Well, I think they did. Um, I mean, the, the Gospels clearly are written, um, as the Gospel of John puts it, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So the the object in writing is to bring people to faith. And uh, elsewhere in the Bible you can see that authors have their own slant, their own uh, tendence, as Germans would put it, their own uh, intentional angle on the things they're describing. So um, in the Hebrew revival, the histories are written from a Judean standpoint, from the point of view of someone in Jerusalem, uh, and the Judeans are the goodies and everybody else are the baddies, if you like, in, the, in that kind of presentation. Uh, and this is um, clearly not objective history writing, if there can be such a thing in our sense. It's not critical history writing in the sense even that the Greeks developed it. It's history written from a particular point of view and a particular slant. And I think that's true of both Testaments, that they are concerned to put particular points across, uh, which um, may be very human points of view and not necessarily easily compatible with the theory that the whole thing is given by God. And in in my book, I I don't deal at very great length with the idea that the Bible is given by God. It's very much an attempt to look at it on a human level and to ask how it got written and how it got collected and interpreted by human beings. I do discuss questions of divine inspiration, but that's not the main concern of the book, which is descriptive and analytical, rather than, in that sense, directly theological.
1: Mm -hmm. And speaking of the Bible as as it exists on a human level, the Bible we've examined so far is really a collection of books that have been gradually and individually integrated into the theological structures of in Christianity, the Church. Who decided which of these books the Bible would eventually comprise?
2: Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, and most people, I think, have in their minds a sort of picture that there must have been a great Church Council that met somewhere and said, "We'll have these books." In fact, are uh, the growth of both Old and New Testaments. Is a much more organic process than that. I mean, by the time the last book of the Old Testament, Daniel, was written, some of the old, older books, like the books of Moses, um, the Pentateuch, were generally accepted as authoritative already. No one ever ruled that they were to be authoritative. They just had established themselves by use. And a similar thing is true of the New Testament, that by the, certainly by the end of the second century, all, more or less all the books that are now in the New Testament are being quoted and cited by Christian writers as having great authority and as being Scripture on a par with the Scriptures of the Old Testament. Um, and in the 4th century, we do start to get a few councils which ruled on the content of the Bible. So what we find is that they rule that certain books are authoritative which we know from other sources were authoritative anyway by then. And they exclude books, which many Christian writers have already said ought not to be considered as canonical scripture. So in a certain sense, as far as canonization, the actual act of affirming that certain books are scripture and that no others are, is concerned. Um, there never was a moment at which it happened. It happened silently and by general consent. Now there are, Books that certain later councils rule out and say, this book is being treated by some people as scripture, but it shouldn't be. But there are very few such books, and uh, on the whole, the books that are in the Bible seem to have just established themselves, rather than actually to have been selected. There is a fuzziness at the edges of the New Testament. So, for example, if you look at Codex Sinaiticus, the great 4th century manuscript of the Bible, which is mostly in the British Library, but that includes, as well as our New Testament, the epistle of Barnabas, and a work called the Shepherd, both of which we know are very popular among early Christians, but didn't in the end make it into the canon. But Sinaiticus transcribes these as though they are part of Scripture. So there is, a, at the edges of the canon, there is debate and uncertainty. But for the most part, where the central books are concerned, the four Gospels and the letters of Paul and so on, There really never was a time when anybody ruled on these. They simply established themselves.
1: Mm -hmm. And of course, most of the time we don't just compile books, we also edit them. Was this the case for the Bible as well? Was it heavily edited?
2: I think it was. Um, The Old Testament books in particular, in many cases, have a long period of growth behind them. If you take a book like Isaiah, there are passages in Isaiah that may go back to the 8th century when Isaiah the prophet lived. There are others which may be as late as the third century BCE, um, and have been added by a gradual process of addition and addition and edition of the of the book of Isaiah into its present form. By New Testament times, there was a book of Isaiah which had in it what we now recognize as Isaiah. But if you went back over the centuries, you'd find the book of Isaiah in a process of formation. And I think that's true of many books. And even the Gospels sometimes show signs of having been edited or touched up in places. Um, The New Testament books in general are more of a piece than the books of the Old Testament are. Um, And uh, I think one can't find much in the way of subsequent additions being made to them. There are a few passages in Paul's letters that, that some scholars suspect of being later editions. And 2 Corinthians, particularly, is sometimes thought to be a kind of patchwork of bits of Pauline writings, which someone has formed together to make a letter, which might be by 2 Corinthians. doesn't seem very coherent, if you compare it with 1 Corinthians, which is very coherent. So that might be a compilation. But in general, the New Testament books, I think, haven't gone through the process of subsequent editing. The Old Testament books very often have.
1: Mm -hmm. And when we think of the Bible now, we think of it in terms of chapters and verses. At which point in time in the history of the Bible were these verses and chapters decided upon, and by whom?
2: Well, the chapters uh, are decided, the chapters we've got are a post-Reformation decision um, about which books, which Um, where the divisions should come the Hebrew Bible has divisions they're not exactly chapter divisions but they're section divisions which don't correspond to the modern chapter divisions verses come in only I think I'm right in saying in the 17th century Um, they're a very handy way of course of referring to the text before that you had to say chapter so and so and then at such and such and quote the words you were referring to So these are late and largely Christian edition verse numbers and chapter numbers. Mm -hmm. And
1: so far we've traced the origins of the Bible from the time they were written to the present day. So I'd like to talk a little about the Bible as we know it and as we experience it today. The The Bible's primary function as we know it is as the sacred text of two major religions. And we've talked about this at length throughout this interview, Christianity and Judaism. How does each of these religions use the text differently, bearing in mind, of course, the diversity of ideas even within each religion?
2: Well, Christianity, as I tried to show in one chapter of this book, um, has tended to read the Bible, Old and New Testaments, as a kind of coherent story, starting with the creation and the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, and then going on through the predictions of the prophets of the coming Messiah, then the stories of Jesus who fulfills these prophecies, and then with the book of Revelation, the final consummation of all things at the end of time. So that's been the sort of interpretative model that Christians have used to read the whole Bible. Judaism has followed a completely different path. In Judaism, the central part of the Hebrew Bible is the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, also known as the Torah, or law or instruction Um, and these have been seen as important in Judaism not so much as telling a consecutive story but more as providing both rules and models for how life should be lived as an observant jew and the other parts of the old testament the 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 prophets and the writings which are the other books the same books as in the christian bible but arranged in a different way are seen more as commentary on the Torah and as helps in keeping the the Torah rather than as important in their own right. And there's not been that sense of uh, a continuous story running down into the present and then potentially to a great uh, consummation of all things at the end of time that there has been in Christianity. So that although, uh, as far as the Hebrew Bible Old Testament is concerned, the books are largely the same, they are differently ordered and differently interpreted on a grand scale. I think one of the illustration I use to bring out the difference is that in Judaism, a section of the Pentateuch, the Torah, is read every Sabbath round the year, rather as in Christian schemes of lectionaries where you read the Bible round the year. But there is one particular Sabbath known as Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the law. When they read the last section of Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch or Torah, followed immediately by the first chapter of Genesis, the beginning of the Torah. So the thing is sort of cyclical. And you don't go on to read into the history of Israel that follows. Now that doesn't mean that the history of Israel that follows isn't isn't important. But so far as the synagogue readings go, the thing is to read the Torah round and round and round the year. And I think I just emphasises that the Torah is centrally important and it's important because of what it tells you about how a Jewish life is to be led, rather than for what it tells you about the history of Israel, or as with the New Testament, the history of the church. Mm-hmm.
1: And why are there so many different ways to interpret the Bible? Is this a feature inherent to the text itself?
2: I think it's partly inherent in the sheer size and scope of the books, I mean, we have this very large number of books, all of which are different from each other. We don't have a simple text telling a simple message. Christianity has felt the need of this and formulated things like the creeds and, to some extent, the confessions of various Protestant churches, which are a bit longer than the creeds, but nonetheless are potted versions of what a Christian should believe. The Bible isn't that at all. It's a much more complex document. Consisting of so many different and partly incompatible books, um, and and therefore, it's impossible to treat it as just one thing, really. In a way, uh, Islam is nearer to a kind of model of unity in that the Quran is quite short by comparison with the Bible, and does have a certain internal unity to it. Though I think that too is quite diverse in some ways. Um, But if you compare that with the Jewish and Christian Bibles, you do get the impression of something much longer and more rambling in our case than you do in the case of Islam. Mm -hmm. What then
1: do you think are some striking similarities in the way the Bible is read by both Christians and Jews
2: alike? Well, one thing is certainly the ethical point of view, that even though for Jews the Torah is preeminent because it teaches how to live whereas for Christians more stress has been laid on the historical and prophetic aspects nevertheless both religions appeal to the Bible as a source of ethical insights and of course um, Christians like Jews refer back to uh, the laws of Moses and especially the Ten Commandments in the case of Christians Um, but The New Testament also contains a lot of moral teaching. Most of Jesus' teaching is about how life should be lived. It's in that sense ethical. And Paul, even though Paul stresses the centrality of faith in the Christian life rather than obedience to Torah, he nevertheless ends many of his epistles with a list of do's and don'ts. Even the epistle to the Galatians, which is so full of stuff about justification by faith alone, ends with a list of the fruits of the Spirit, which are very ethically centred on what kind of life Christians ought to live and what the style of their living ought to be. So I think that's the first thing, that both for both Jews and Christians, the ethical dimension is important. Also the theological dimension, that both Testaments teach us things about God, and especially about God in relation to humanity, what the nature of God is, God as gracious but also judging, um, that that emerges in both Testaments, so theological things about the nature of God, and about the nature of humanity, what it is to be a human being, uh, which both Testaments testify to, uh, this sort of sense that all human life is there, it's very strong in all parts of the Bible, but you read it to recognise yourself. A slogan which I sometimes apply to the Bible is one that I learned from a Lutheran theologian that the Bible tells us who we are. And I think, that read in one way, you can say that the Bible shows us what human nature is like. And that's quite helpful, I think, as a model because, of course, in some parts it shows us what human nature shouldn't be like, um, but is. And that, that, that can be a helpful way of reading some of the bloodier bits of the Old Testament. Some people, of course, have an exaggerated sense that the Old Testament is all blood all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about violence, which isn't true at all. But there are violent sections, and I think we have to read those as reflecting on the nature of humanity.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course the Bible, as we know it, isn't just a religious text. It's also right now a cultural icon. And of course a subject of constant fascination wider society. How would it say its role and place has evolved over the years outside of its religious affiliations?
2: Yes, I mean, there's a certain sense in which the Bible clearly is a religious book. Um, C.S. Lewis once says that to read the Bible as purely as literature is to read it against the grain. There is some truth in that, but if you steadfastly refuse to recognise that it's talking about religious matters, you're not going to understand it very well. Nevertheless, there is that sense that I've just been trying to unpick. The Bible presents us with what humanity is like, not just what um, God is like, what humanity is like in the presence of God, if you like to put it that way. Um, And that can have an appeal beyond religious communities that venerate the biblical text. Um, In a sense, the Bible is not so much the foundation of Judaism and Christianity as the main document Judaism and Christianity have produced. And that production has been very much, as I've tried to show in the book, in terms of human interests and desires and and concerns, not just religious ones. And I think the Bible can function, for those who are not religious, as an important um, text that has wisdom to impart, even if you're not a religious person.
1: Alright, and I'd like to spend the last few minutes perhaps talking about your current research interest, that is, Biblical translation. Um, from what I understand, you have a book coming out sometime soon about this specific topic. Um, now, we've, we've discussed already how the Bible means different things to different people, but surely that's not just a matter of interpretation, it's also very much an issue of translation. How have translators contributed, for better or for worse, to our understanding of the Bible's teachings?
2: it is a very important matter yes yes i i had a chapter on biblical translation in this book and that made me think i'd like to write a whole book not not such a long one i hasten to say on the subject of biblical translation itself because um the modern age has seen an enormous proliferation of different versions of the bible in many languages in english there are literally hundreds of different versions of the bible on the market um and um Of course, every translation is also, to some extent, an interpretation. And so they're often written from different religious stances. So there are Catholic translations, and there are evangelical translations, and there are liberal translations. Um, And my attempt in this new piece of research is to look at, especially contemporary translations, and to try to classify them and see just what they are doing to the text, one major concern in recent years has been the use of inclusive language, in other words, of using terms that are gender neutral, uh, so that the androcentric or very ma- male-centred emphases of, in a way, both testaments, are tempered by including language that includes women wherever possible, um, so that uh, when Paul addresses his letters to brothers, Adelphoi in Greek. He was, of course, addressing them to both men and women in the congregations that would hear them. Uh, And the masculine form was the default version in Greek, as it has been in English for many centuries. But modern translations render brothers and sisters, or sisters and brothers, rightly seeing that the text was addressed to both men and women. And if you go through consistently and do that in the Bible, you do get a rather different impression of the audience that's intended. Sometimes it can be misleading in that the text may really genuinely be addressed mainly to men. Um, but if the Bible is to speak to the modern world, it does have probably to be inclusivized as much as possible. So that's been one particularly important theme in modern translations. The real issue in biblical translation is, do you translate the text as the person would have written if they'd been writing now? Or do you translate in such a way as to emphasise that it's an ancient text coming from a different cultural background? And those two options have dominated the translation industry in the Bible, as indeed the translation of other works, and have been sort of has been that has been sort of theorised in the last few decades in translation theory into the two forms of translation, which is called functional equivalence, which is when you translate as though it's being written yesterday or formal equivalence, where you emphasize how foreign and different the context is in which the Bible comes. And I've been trying to show how different versions exemplify one or other of those approaches. Mm
1: -hmm. And of course, when we translate something, we inevitably lose a portion of its meaning. Um, Are there any particular aspects of the original Bible, as it's read in Hebrew or Aramaic, that our current authoritative translations perhaps fail to capture completely?
2: There is a sense in which any, as you say, I mean any translation always loses something. Um, in the case of the Hebrew Bible, one of the things it often loses is wordplay. the The Hebrew scriptures are full of um, puns, not just as Shakespeare is full of puns, and in modern English it's often very, very difficult to render those puns accurately. Um, Isaiah, for example, in chapter five says that um, God looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry, the cry of the poor. But righteousness is tzedakah, and the cry of the poor is tzedakah, very similar words in Hebrew. And of course, you lose that pun, however hard you try when you translate into English or any other language. And there's a lot of cases in the Hebrew Bible of that kind of punning that gets lost. Mm-hmm. I I think there are fewer things in the New Testament that we lose in translation. Um, I think in general, we're well served by modern translations of the New Testament. That's really Mm, interesting. Mm.
1: Well, I think we've taken up quite enough of your time today, and it's been a very interesting hour speaking to you about this. So I've got one final question. Um, If you could interview someone, anyone, for their new book in history, who would that be?
2: Well, in in the biblical studies world, which I'm in, I would very much like to hear an interview with John Collins at Yale Divinity School, who is an expert on the Hebrew Bible, much more of an expert on it than I am, and who would have fascinating insights to contribute. And in the same field, Carol Newsome at Emory would be a fascinating interviewee. So I'd, I'd recommend both of them to you as possible people to do podcasts with. Well,
1: thank you very much for spending a good hour of your time talking to us today, John. It's been a real pleasure, and you've been a very gracious guest. We look forward to having you on the program again.
2: Thank you very much.
1: On that note, thanks for your time, and thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in History.